I went to uh, graduate school at Columbia International University. It's in Columbia, South Carolina. And I went to the seminary there. They have a Bible college. And when I was there, I found out about the former president of the school who was the president in the 1990s. His name was Robertson McQuilkin. And his wife was Muriel. Robertson McQuilkin was a very brilliant man. He was the president of the Bible college, the seminary. In fact, in my in my hermeneutics class, which is the science and art of interpretation, we had to use his textbook on how to interpret the Bible. So he had written a number of books. Well, being a president of a university has many responsibilities, but his wife ended up getting Alzheimer's or dementia. And after a while, he stepped down as being president of the Bible college and seminary in order to take care of his wife until she died. And a lot of people were amazed that he was willing to do that. It was definitely an act of sacrifice, an act of love. He was doing the work of the Lord. You know, often we think of doing the work of the Lord, we think of teaching a Sunday school, doing homeless outreach, evangelism, serving on a board. All those things are good, and all of those things involve doing the work of the Lord. But doing the work of the Lord is more than just what happens in this building. Doing the work of the Lord is taking care of your sick parents. Doing the work of the Lord is ministering to your sick spouse. Doing the work of the Lord is being a good employer and employee on your job where you're salt and light and you're deliberately trying to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Doing the work of the Lord is much broader than what happens Sunday morning in this building. And those things that we often seem as insignificant to God, they are significant. Those little things that we think don't matter to God, they do matter to God. And that's why Hebrews 6.10 says that God will not forget your work and the labor and the love that you have shown to his people. Jesus said in Matthew 10, if you give a cup of cold water in his name, you will not lose your reward. Well, God wanted the Israelites to do his work at that juncture in history, in the Old Testament, and God's work for Israel was to rebuild the temple. But Israel wasn't doing the work of the Lord, and so God had to chastise them. So I invite you to turn to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai, we are looking at chapters 1 and 2, and the title of this message is Serving the Lord, Making a Priority of That, or Doing the Work of the Lord. God has called all of us to do His work. Now again, just a little bit of background. We introduced this to you last week, but to bring you up to speed... If you remember, the Israelites in the southern kingdom had fallen into idolatry, they had fallen into immorality, and God is a very patient God, but he raised up the prophets to warn the Israelites that if they did not repent of their idolatry and of their immorality and all the other sins, he would raise up a foreign nation to oppress them. Well, the Israelites didn't listen to the prophets, they stoned them, they defied them, and as a result, God raised up the Babylonians. And the Babylonians took the Israelites, the southern kingdom, back to Babylon in three different waves. And then while they were there, at the end of 70 years, God promised them that he would bring them back to their land. Babylon has now shifted off the scene, and Persia is now the new world empire. And there was a man by the name of Cyrus, who, by the way, is prophesied in Isaiah chapter 45, God calls this pagan king my shepherd. 
And God uses him to make a decree that the Israelites can come back to their land. And so in three successive waves, the Israelites return to their homeland. And the first group that came back was given the assignment of basically rebuilding the temple. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple, and so it was the center of their religious life. And to rebuild the temple was basically saying, God, you are my priority. You are the object of my affection. Not to rebuild the temple was basically scorning God. And so when they came back, only about 49,000 in that first wave came back, which wasn't a lot. They immediately started worshiping. And you know what they built? They built the brazen altar. I call it the barbecue grill. And what they did was they began to offer up sacrifices to the Lord. And so, so far, so good. They had an auspicious beginning. And then they laid the foundation of the temple. In fact, they purchased wood from Lebanon because Lebanon was known for its cedars. And so they purchased this wood in order to help rebuild the temple. However, inertia set in. They faced opposition from their enemies And as a result, politics always plays a role. The government came in and halted their rebuilding. And for 16 years, the temple lied fallow. It wasn't rebuilt. The foundation was rebuilt, but the people got lazy. Inertia set in. Procrastination set in. And listen to this. The wood that they purchased to build the temple more than likely they used to build their own homes. And that's why in chapter 1, God says to the Israelites, you are, you are doing or working on your homes and you're living in your own paneled houses. And so many people believe they were taking the material that was supposed to be used for the temple and they were using it for their own homes. Nothing is new under the sun. How many people today take the resources of God and use it for their own personal benefit? The Bible says we're to give our first fruits to the Lord, but often we can take our first fruits and use it for us. In fact, there are a lot of Christians in the American church that are driving stolen cars. They're wearing stolen clothes. They are living in stolen homes. Because rather than giving the Lord their first fruits, they're taking The Lord's resources, he owns it all anyway, but instead of taking it, they're using it for their own benefit. That's exactly what the Israelites were doing. And so God has to raise up two prophets to get their attention. The first prophet was Haggai. Haggai was first. Zechariah probably prophesied a couple months later, but God raises up Haggai, and Haggai gives four prophecies or messages in the book of Haggai to motivate the people. And then the second prophet he raises up is Zechariah. Zechariah is a little bit different. His book is challenging. He gives eight visions, two sermons, and two burdens in order to motivate the people. He had to challenge them. He had to chastise them because they were in a state of inertia. Tony Evans says the following about the Israelites, quote, God had been put on the back burner and his kingdom priorities had become secondary to their personal priorities. They didn't prioritize God, but wanted God to prioritize them. And so God gives them a one-two punch in the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah. They were like tag team wrestlers. I remember when I first got married, 
My dad came to me and he said, Mike, he says, uh, I got these free tickets to a WW wrestling match. Do you want to go? I was like, yeah, I might as well go. I'll see what this is about. And I went, man, talk about bravado and pride. But you had these wrestlers up there. And I remember the one wrestler, I remember he was up there, a big dude. He's like 6'9". He was called The Undertaker was his name. And so they did all their stuff, all the antics that they do. And, you know, often in wrestling, you'll see a tag team where they tag team together in order to defeat the opponent. Well, that's exactly what God did. He raised up Haggai and Zechariah as a tag team, and they ended up motivating the people. Now, as we look at the book of Haggai, there's two things we want to look at. First of all, and I brought this up last week, we want to look at the problems that you and I deal with whenever we serve the Lord, because the Israelites were dealing with some problems. And listen, these problems are universal. I don't care what generation you live in. You're going to deal with some problems when serving the Lord. Next week, we're going to look at the promises that God makes to us whenever we serve Him. But what are some of the problems that you and I face whenever we do the work of the Lord or prioritize the Lord? I gave you four of them last week. Let me review them real quickly, and then we'll pick up where we left off from last week. First of all, I noted for you, one of the problems that we deal with is procrastination. Tomorrow I'll do it. Tomorrow I'll serve the Lord. When I, get, when I get retired, I'll serve the Lord. We all have excuses that we give. And what did they say? It's not yet the Lord's time to rebuild the temple. 16 years it lied fallow. They got into a state of procrastination. Secondly is the issue of distractions. They were dealing with their homes. And in chapter 1, if you remember last week, God said to them, Is it right for you to be living in your paneled houses while my house is neglected? Nothing wrong with having a house. They needed to have a house, but the problem was it became a distraction for them, among other things, rather than doing the work of the Lord. And listen, there's a lot of Christians that are distracted today. Many good things in our culture, but you know what? They can become distractions where we're not serving the Lord. There's a third thing that they dealt with, and that was opposition. They were dealing with the enemies. They were dealing with the Persian government. They were dealing with Samaritans who were half-Jews who wanted to ostensibly help them in the rebuilding of the temple, but they read between the lines and knew that they were simply enemies that wanted to oppose them. And so because of opposition, they halted the work. And sometimes we don't serve the Lord because we deal with opposition. It could be from our spouse, our children. It could be our coworker. We all deal with opposition, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're going to get resistance whenever we serve the Lord. If you're serving the Lord and you're not being resisted, you're not serving the Lord. Now, I'm not saying you're going to get resisted all the time, but you're going to face opposition. And then there's a fourth thing that we looked at last week and I want to pick up for this morning, and that is disobedience. Disobedience. If you remember in chapter 1, verses 5 through 11, God chides them because they were being disobedient. They weren't listening and doing what God wanted. And he said, consider your ways. He says, I want you to reflect on your disobedience and the consequence that's resulting from it. Because of your disobedience, there's a supply chain problem. I'm not blessing your economy. Your economy's tanking. And God says, I want you to connect the dots and see your disobedience is leading to this. Well, I want to pick up on this theme of disobedience because he not only addresses it in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, but in chapter 2, God's going to come back to this issue of disobedience. So we want to pick up in verse 10 through 19, and we want to look at this issue of disobedience. It says on the 
24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius. Now, Darius was the Persian king. Babylon was off the scene. Persia now is in power, and you have King Darius. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet. Now, remember, I said Haggai gives four prophecies. This is the third prophecy, and notice verse 11. This is what the Lord of hosts says. Ask the priests for a ruling. In other words, he wants Haggai to ask the priests a question, and he wants the priest to answer the question. What is the question? Notice what he says in verse 12. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. Now, priests in that day would take consecrated meat, it was set apart for the Lord, and they would put it in the fold of their garment, and it was set apart unto God. And he asked this question, if that meat that's been consecrated unto God touches something else, is it able to transfer its holiness? And the answer is no. You can't transfer holiness. Now, I can influence you to be more holy, but I cannot transfer holiness. And God, the priest said, no, you can't take consecrated meat if it touches other things. It's not going to communicate its ceremonial cleanness to those other objects or people. Now he's going to flip it and ask another question. He says, then Haggai asked in verse 13, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse or a dead body touches any of these, does it become defiled? The priest answered, it becomes defiled. Now, the opposite is true with something defiled. Something that's consecrated and holy, if it touches anything else, it doesn't make it holy. On the other hand, according to Numbers chapter 19, if you touch a dead body, you are ceremonially unclean in the Old Testament. And then if you touch anything else, whatever you touch becomes unclean. You say, well, what's God's point here? Simply this, you can't transfer holiness, but you can transfer contamination. You can't transfer purity, but you can contaminate and corrupt other things if you touch a dead body. And so what is God trying to say to the Israelites? Here's what he's trying to say about their disobedience. I want you to notice in verse 14, then Haggai replied, so is this people. And so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands, even what they offer there is defiled. Now remember, when they came back from Babylon, they took the brazen altar, the barbecue grill, they started making sacrifices to God, and God is saying this. Are you listening? Say amen. He's saying, because you're disobeying me as a lifestyle and you're not doing what I ask you to do, he says, because you are defiled and you are corrupt because of your disobedience, everything you touch is corrupted. In other words, I'm not receiving your worship when you put that animal on the brazen altar. That's a powerful thought. Here's the application for us today. If you are a nominal Christian, you're not walking with the Lord, you're not serving the Lord, you're not obeying the Lord as a lifestyle, God does not receive your worship. He doesn't receive your offerings. Now, you may give them to the church, you may serve at times, God doesn't receive our worship because, listen, if we are defiled, we are corrupted because of our lifestyle of disobedience, everything we touch becomes defiled. In fact, Jesus said this, if you're worshiping me and you got something against your brother, Matthew chapter 5, 
He says, leave that offering. Go get right with your brother, then come back and make your offering. In other words, God is concerned about our obedience. Now, we're not going to be perfectly obedient. That's not what God is talking about here. He's talking about rebellion. And if we're not living for the Lord, what happens is everything we touch becomes defiled. We're not being obedient. Now, there's two types of disobedience. It's important that you make this distinction. Number one, there is what I call acts of disobedience. These are Christians that serve the Lord, they're believers, and they're walking with God, but they commit acts of disobedience on a daily basis, on a regular basis. Most of us in here probably are in this camp. What does the Bible say we do? We confess our sins to God, and He forgives us. But sometimes as faithful Christians who commit acts of disobedience, if we're not careful, watch this, when doing the work of the Lord, sometimes we can rebel against God. A good example of this is in the Old Testament, Jonah. Jonah was a faithful prophet, and God gave him an assignment. He said, I want you to go to Nineveh, which was a very corrupt nation. Nineveh was known for its violence. He says, I want you to go to that capital city. That was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And he says, I want you to preach against their wickedness because I'm going to bring a revival. And what did Jonah do? Jonah was prejudiced. He hated the pagan Gentile. He said, I'm not going. And what did he do? He went the opposite side. He went all the way to Spain, Tarshish. He was a faithful prophet, but an act of disobedience, he did not want to do the work of the Lord. So God had to give him a ride on Shamu in order to get his attention. So there are Christians that are faithful, but they commit acts of disobedience. And you know what? We all, at times, God may call us to do his work, and sometimes we struggle. We struggle. Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go here. I don't want to do this. Richard Stearns, you ever heard of World Vision? A lot of you in here support World Vision. World Vision helps a lot of poor kids in other nations. They take the wealth of the West and other countries as well to help impoverished children and families. He was a wealthy man. He got saved. His wife, who was a believer, he was not. She was influential in leading him to Christ. He was very prosperous, owned a company that sold China, very expensive China. He lived in a big house, had five children, drove a, drove a Jaguar, loved his company, traveled. His kids were in Christian school, all of that. And one day he was confronted with becoming the president of World Vision. He didn't seek it out. He didn't ask for it. But when God approached him through other people, he was like, nope. Not interested, not interested, and God kept bringing it back to him, kept bringing it back to him. You ought to read the story. God kept bringing it back to him. He said he cried like a baby. He argued with God. He said, I'm not your man. I can't do it, and he cried to his wife, and he said at one point he put on his pajamas, and he said he crawled into bed, pulled the covers over, and just cried like a baby. You ever been there before? He was a Jonah. He was a faithful believer not wanting to do the work of the Lord when God gave him an assignment. We've all been there before. Now, there's a second type of disobedient Christian, and this is one that doesn't commit acts of disobedience. This is a lifestyle of disobedience. This is a Christian who gets saved, and there's fruit in their life, but then they fall into a lifestyle of disobedience like the Israelites, 16 years neglecting the work of the Lord. They weren't doing what God asked them to do, and they became comfortable in that state. You ever been there before? I was. When I graduated high school, man, I was on fire for the Lord my senior year. 
my junior year and senior year. And then I got pulled away from God, went to college at Samford University, and you know what happened? I started not to serve the Lord, and I started a party again. Started drinking, started carousing, and I wasn't doing what the Lord asked me to do. And you know what? Eventually, God got my attention. Thankfully, it was through gentle means. You know, God has ways of getting our attention. God didn't appoint a whale to swallow me. But if I didn't listen, God would have turned up the heat, I believe, because he knew what he was calling me to do. And I responded, there are Christians in the American church that fall into this state, lifestyle of disobedience, they're complacent, they're not serving the Lord, they're not seeking the Lord out, and they are in a state of inertia. And you know what? God sometimes has to raise up another person like Haggai in order to get our attention. And if you're in that condition this morning, here's my question, are you listening to God? God can sometimes allow the bottom to drop out and the roof cave in in order to get our attention. The question is, are we listening? I remember growing up, you know, my mom, I'm where I'm at today because of my mother. My mother was a disciplinarian. My mom was a stay-home mom, and she says that she wore a belt around her neck for me because I was the middle one. And I gave my mom so much trouble I would put her in tears at night, she said. She'd cry to my dad, I don't know what we're going to do with Michael. And I was always into trouble, breaking windows. I burn a car to the ground. I did all these things. And I remember one day my aunt, my dad's sister, came up to me. I'll never forget it. She said, Michael, she said, listen to me. She says, I want you to do one thing. She says, I want you to just listen to your mother. Listen to your mother. Listen, my mom tore me up. She wasn't abusive, but in the old days, you know, you use whatever you could to smack your children. <laughs> my mom got my attention, but you know what? I'm where I'm at today because of her discipline. I wasn't listening. Some of you may not be listening this morning. Acts of disobedience or a lifestyle of disobedience. And so one of the problems that we all deal with when we're doing the work of the Lord is disobedience. Now, how did the people respond when Haggai and Zechariah confronted them about their disobedience? Well, good news, chapter 1, verse 12, here's how they responded. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people, look what it says, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And so the people feared the Lord. You know what it means to fear the Lord? It means to reverence the Lord. And listen, there is a direct link between fearing God and obeying God. The book of Proverbs says the fear of the Lord causes a person to turn away from evil. If I fear God, I'm going to obey God, albeit not perfectly, but I will follow the Lord. If I don't follow the Lord and I'm not obeying him, I don't fear him. You know what the problem in America is today? We don't fear God. We spit at God. We deny God. And that's what he says in Romans 1, there is no fear of God. And that's a healthy fear, a reverential fear. They obeyed the Lord and they did what the Lord asked them to do. Is God asking you to do something this morning and you're pulling a Jonah? Or are you in that complacency, that inertia where God is not the priority in your life, let alone doing the work of the Lord, but you're not prioritizing the Lord. He is not the object of your supreme affection. There's another problem in doing the work of the Lord that we often deal with, and this is number five on our list, and that is comparison or discouragement. Comparison or discouragement. Notice, if you will, chapter 2 of Haggai, verses 1 through 3. It says, on the 21st day 
of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai, the prophet. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. And then God asked this question. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? He says, is there any of you still alive that remembers the temple before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it? Any of you out there? Any of you remember what the temple was like? God asked this question. How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing to you? In other words, the people were struggling. Some of the older people were saying, look at this rebuilt temple. When I compare it to Solomon's temple, it's nothing. God knew they were struggling with comparison and discouragement. In fact, if you read Ezra's account, here's what it says happened. Notice Ezra chapter 3. This is a parallel account. When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, that's when they came back from Babylon, the priests dressed in their robes, holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Aspha, holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord, as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for He is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. They started singing this. They were praising the Lord when the foundation of the temple was laid. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But notice verse 12. But many of the older priests, the Levites, and the family leaders who had seen the first temple, Solomon's temple, wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this house, but many others shouted joyfully, <laughs> Look at this temple! Hey, praise the Lord! Look at this temple! You got both emotions. The people could not distinguish, verse 13, the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. See, some of them were comparing this new rebuilt temple to Solomon's temple. They got discouraged because they were making a comparison and they thought, this temple is nothing. What is God going to do with this feeble temple? And God's going to encourage them because here's what he says to them. If you notice Haggai chapter 2, verse 9, here is what God says to these beleaguered ones who were discouraged by the rebuilding of the temple being inferior to Solomon's temple. He says, the final glory of this house. In other words, this rebuilt temple, the final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of hosts. He says, I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. You say, why is God telling them that the final glory of this house would be greater? Here's the reason why. Who would walk through this rebuilt temple during his earthly ministry? Jesus. Jesus went into this rebuilt temple that Zerubbabel built and Joshua helped build and the remnant of the people. By the way, Herod the Great actually added on to that temple and it was big. 70 AD it was destroyed. But Jesus went through that temple, and he said, there'll be peace in this house. Why? Because the Prince of Peace will walk through it. So God is saying, don't be discouraged. Don't compare. This temple is going to be greater than the former because Jesus is going to walk through this temple. And so here's another problem that you and I deal with whenever we do the work of the Lord, is we struggle with comparison and discouragement, and the two are inseparably linked. Because often, when we compare ourselves to other people, we get discouraged. Lord, I don't have the gifts that they have. Lord, I don't have the talents that they have. 
Lord, I can't speak like they do. I can't sing like they do. God, look at me. I come from an inauspicious background. I come from nowhere. Who am I? We kind of have the Gideon complex. Or the Israelites that were going to go into the promised land, when they came back to give a report, what did they say? We were like grasshoppers in their sight. Some of you act like grasshoppers. Who am I? By the way, you want to know why this generation struggles with so much anxiety and depression? Social media. Sociologists have done studies on this. It is because they get on these social media sites, and I'm not saying they're all bad, but they get on fake book or flesh book, and what happens is they make comparisons between them and all their friends that have perfect lives, and they look good, and everything seems so grandiose. And you know what happens? They get anxious. They get depressed. They make comparisons. Listen, the Bible says not to compare your gifts and talents to other people. Don't compare your looks to other people. God made you uniquely who you are. But we often struggle with this. And we got to remember that God is going to use us in a unique way. You know, I went to, as I mentioned, Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama when I graduated. I was recruited for football. It was a beautiful university, Southern Baptist School. Uh, it was beautiful. I lived in a nice dorm. Really loved the school. Year two, I recommitted my life to the Lord, and he was calling me to ministry. And so I called a pastor back in Miami where I grew up. I dated his daughter my senior year. We weren't dating anymore, but I called him up, and I said, Greg, the Lord's calling me to be a pastor, full-time ministry. He said, Mike, here's what I recommend you do. Leave Sanford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and come back to Miami. He said, we have a Bible college here. You will get so much more training. And I said, Done. So I called my parents, and they were like, huh? They're like, are you sure you want to come back to Miami? I said, yeah. So I went to Miami Christian College. Notice the picture up on the screen. It's no longer in existence today. Listen carefully. The campus was a dump. They bought the school back in the 50s. The neighborhood transformed and changed. It's in Opelika, Florida, north of Miami. It was an absolute dump. We had a kid get shot on campus. Almost killed him. And I remember the guy that took me to my dorm, when he opened the dorm and I looked in, there was all kind of debris all over the floor. It was totally different than Sanford University. I came from a high-end school to this Bible college. And you know what? I made the comparison. And I, I said, I'm not going to get discouraged because, listen, I'm not interested in all the frills. I'm interested in getting trained for the Lord. But you know what? It's human nature to want to compare. We all struggle with that. Listen, don't let discouragement and comparison keep you from using your gifts. A lot of people say, well, God can't use me because I'm not as good as so-and-so. There's another thing as we wind down in terms of why we struggle with serving the Lord, and that is laziness, laziness. Notice, if you will, verse 4 of chapter 2. He says, be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. High priest, be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. And I want you to notice that word there. Circle it. Say it out loud. What does he say? Say it again. In other words, he's saying, look, guys, get off your lower hemisphere and work. Doing the work of the Lord requires work. Now, it's not drudgery. I love what I do. People say, oh, why do you do all this stuff? Because I love it. I work. And listen, some Christians will work for the Lord, but they'll do, they have a minimalist mentality. I'm going to put in the minimal that I can. They're lazy. Some Christians are like French bread. They're one long loaf. 
Some of you are getting hungry now, aren't you? Listen, some Christians, they don't want to do any work for the Lord because it'll require them to get out of their comfort zone. They're lazy. And then some Christians will work for the Lord, but they'll have a thrift store mentality. What is a thrift store? Have you ever seen anybody give their best furniture to the thrift store? How about their best clothes? How about whatever? Listen, thrift store, you give leftover. Some Christians, all right, I'll serve the Lord, but I'm going to give my minimal. Thrift store. I'm going to give thrift store. Now, listen, we all could do more, and we could get into that perfectionist mentality. If you're a perfectionist, stop. Because you could always say, well, I could have done more. I could have done this. I could have done this. No. But you know when you're being lazy and you don't want to serve the Lord, and God calls us not to be lazy. Well, there's one final reason for this morning in terms of problems we deal with in serving the Lord, and that is fear. Fear. Notice, if you will, chapter 2, verse 4. Even so, God says, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all the people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of hosts. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. What was the promise God made to the generation that came out of Egypt? He promised that his spirit would be with them. And then he says this to them, do not be afraid. There it is fear. What do they have to be fearful about? The enemies? The enemies shut down the work, the government? Listen, in America, if we face persecution one day, and it may be coming, wholesale, we're all going to have to battle fear, and what are we going to do? Are we going to follow the Lord, or are we going to follow the government? You don't think the Christians that we watched in that video don't battle fear? Listen, we're all going to battle fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's moving forward in spite of fear. But you want to know one of the reasons why people don't do the work of the Lord? They fear. They fear failure. They fear persecution. They fear that they're going to stumble. They fear what other people will think about them so they don't serve the Lord. And listen, the American church is gripped by a spirit of fear. How do I know that? 98% of Christians never share their faith. If 98% of Christians never share their faith, that means fear has a stronghold on us and it's choking us. In fact, you know what I've found out? Fear, when it gets a hold of you, it won't let go. In Australia, there's a shark. It's a weird kind of shark. It's called a wabigong shark. You ever heard of them? Wabigong. This guy in Australia was out diving and this shark, Wabigon, grabbed onto right below his kneecap, wouldn't let go. He didn't know what to do. I know what I would have done. I would have cut off its head. But he ended up coming out of the water and driving to the clinic, and they had to remove the Wabigon shark because it had a grip and it wouldn't let go. That's exactly what fear and discouragement and anger and guilt. Those are other things that we deal with in serving the Lord. If we don't get a grip, what will happen is fear will rule us. And the Bible says in 2 Timothy 1, God has not given us a spirit of what? Fear, but a power, love, and sound mind. So let me ask you a question as we close this morning. Are you doing the work of the Lord? Is the Lord the priority in your life? It's not just doing the work of the Lord, it's making God the object of your affection. He's the priority. And what are some of the problems that we deal with in doing the work of the Lord? Seven of them. Procrastination. Distractions. 
opposition, disobedience, comparison, discouragement, laziness, fear. We could add guilt. We could add anger. There are many other things that can often keep us from doing the work of the Lord. Now, next week, we're going to finish up Haggai. He's going to give us some of the promises that God makes us whenever we do His work. And you want to come back next week for this as we learn what are the promises of God. I want to mention one thing before I close here in prayer and we uh, get led in worship. The homeless outreach that we're doing is different from our backyard. It's a part of it, but different. We're going to a location that we've already scouted out in Columbus. We're going to set up tables. And so what I'm looking for is toiletries, non-perishable food items, jackets, socks, gloves, if you have that. We're not pressuring you to do it. Bring it to the church office, and we're going to deliver it. There's about 50 or hopefully 60 homeless people that are come out. We're going to preach the gospel to them. So just want to encourage you to be a part of that. Don't forget, we got the prayer guide as you leave and vote this Tuesday. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for reminding us. Lord God, of our need to serve you. And Lord, what a privilege, what a joy it is to serve you. We don't grin and bear it, but Father, we serve you with joy, even though there are challenges and there are hardships. I pray that we'd have that burning spirit and passion in us to serve you. And if you're sitting here this morning, maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I want to encourage you that if you want to go to heaven, the Bible says you can't get to heaven by being a good person. You can't get to heaven by going to church. The Bible says the only way to get to heaven is you repent of your sins and ask Jesus who died for you and rose from the dead to be your Lord and Savior. John 1 says, to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. If you've never asked Jesus Christ to save you this morning, I want to encourage you to do that. Because no one knows the day or the hour when you'll be taken from this earth. Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, let's stand together as we close in worship. God bless you. Let's be salt and light this week.